Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, I mean pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here with my friend Vivian Dittmar. What I know about Vivian from personal experience, she, I, I went to Germany a number of years ago in some of the public speeches. Maybe it was just even one at that point. Uh, Vivian was my translator. Uh, so we did, you know, I, I would say a sentence or two and then she would translate. And it was just on a totally other level from any translation I'd experienced up until then. It was like we were kind of making poetry together. Uh, and I just felt like she was standing in the same field that I was speaking from. And again, last year I was in Germany and Austria and experienced it in the same way and got feedback from other people also that confirmed my, my gut feeling that like it had transcended translation and it was a collaboration. And yeah, I just feel a really deep resonance and this feeling we're standing in the same field speaking from the same place. And I know Vivian does workshops and retreats and some of the same kind of work that I do. So we've been curious to collaborate and had also a few quite deep conversations. So we thought we'd record a conversation and then we're going to follow it up with a, uh, some kind of online event for German speakers. But uh, Vivian, do you want to fill in anything <laughs> relevant to your bio that I am oblivious to? Well, maybe the one piece that might be interesting to add is that I also write books like you do. And um, mm -hmm. I feel what really connects us is this, like you mentioned, speaking from a different place or actually more connecting to places and then finding words for that. Mm. Yeah, that's the one piece I would like to mm -hmm. add. Are your books in German only or are they in English too? No, they've been translated to a number of languages and mm -hmm. some are also in English. Is there one favorite one that you'd like to tell us about? Well, one that I'm really excited about that's coming out now is the inner GPS that is all about that inner navigational system that's centered in the heart, like you called it mm -hmm. in Vienna. And a lot of my books focus on guiding people into a deeper connection with themselves. Mm -hmm. Because this is what I feel we really need now. We need people who are connected with life within themselves so that they can begin to act from that place. 
and relate from that place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the book I'm most excited about right now. My older book is about feelings, the power of feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's all about making friends with challenging feelings, which I feel will be a part of our conversation today. Yeah, let's, uh, let's go there. Um, what are some of the challenging feelings you have in mind that we especially need to make friends with right now? The feeling that's been most present for me in the collective field has been fear ever since this started and fear from different directions. Fear of, for some people, obviously, of the virus. For other people, fear of the measures that are being taken. Uh, for other people, fear of the economic consequences. Uh, just so much fear. And the, the challenge that we have with fear is closely related with the challenge that we have with death. Yes. Which is one thing we wanted to talk about today. And so what's been very present for me is how can we connect to fear in a way that is powerful and where we can access the tremendous power that is in fear because actually fear is an ally. Because a lot of people uh, who are, who identify as spiritual or conscious will talk about um, choosing love over fear mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, seeing fear as, as the kind of the enemy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so what do you mean by making friends with fear? Mm. Like what's another way, what's a third way besides uh, being captive of fear or rejecting fear for love? Like what, what, what would you say to do? Well, what I observe is that people reject fear and they close and the heart closes. And that often has to do with the fear of fear. Mm -hmm. So what I guide people to do is to relax into the sensation, to open to the sensation of fear and to connect with it. And then there's this incredible vibration of aliveness and potential that is revealed in fear itself. And that's when fear basically transforms from its shadow expression, which is paralysis or even panic, into its potential. And its purpose as a power is to guide us through these initiations or these experiences where we meet the unknown, where we are at the edge of definitely our comfort zone, but it's more than our comfort zone. It's it's where we just don't know. <laughs> That's the place where fear is our ally and it makes us in its power, when we really connect with it, it makes us incredibly present. Right. It can make us very conscious, very alert and aware. And it makes us capable of, of things that we are normally not capable of. Yes, I've had similar thoughts about that, about this rejection of fear seems in a way anti-life because yeah. fear has a purpose. Like it's not like nature gave us this bad thing that we have to overcome. Mm -hmm. Fear has a purpose. Like if I'm driving on an icy road, for example, or walking on an icy patch and I feel fear, it brings me exactly what you said into a state of heightened alertness. Mm -hmm. Whereas, and you mentioned the shadow aspects of it. So paralysis is like the like one direction, one pole, and then the other would be panic. So one is under activity, under activity one's over activity. Mm -hmm. 
So the gift of fear to make us more present, more alive. And I'm wondering now how this applies to coronavirus, uh, not just as individuals, but also as a society, because I guess I'm seeing both. I'm seeing paralysis in the form of denial and also panic in the form of uh, just an excessive hysterical response to it. And, you know, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes. I've, I've entertained the various uh, narratives uh, and sense-making about COVID-19. And it's really um, hard to forge a middle path because those who doubt the official narrative or official narratives, they jump to the place of, well, there's really nothing to be afraid of. It's no worse than mm -hmm. flu. Like this is not, mm -hmm. you know, really anything that bad at all. We're in a big upper over nothing. But what if it is, it is scary and we're overreacting? We, or what if we are overreacting, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't react at all. Mm -hmm. like, so this is, do you, do you have any thoughts about, um, exactly like how this applies to coronavirus and, and the public response as well as the personal response? Well, I've had very similar observations like you shared. And one of the things I noticed, I don't think we've ever been collectively, globally together in such a big field of not knowing mm -hmm. and such a big space of uncertainty. At least over here, there's so much transparency. I'm sitting in Germany. Uh, so much transparency about how little we know <laughs> and how all the data is so fraught with uncertainty. And what I observe is that we as a culture are not good at that because actually what enables us to meet the unknown is the power of fear. And we're not, we're not friends with that. So what happens is exactly what you say. We try to control, we try to deny, we try to jump to conclusions. So my work in the past few weeks has really been to to invite all of us again and again to just remain in this uncertainty because there's such beauty in this uncertainty and there's such possibility there. That's really what I sense when I'm really open to the power of fear and this enormous space that's there, if I really embrace this not knowing, there's much more possibility right now than we had uh, a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. and, and this, just to conclude, this is collectively, but also personally. I see a lot of people are questioning a lot of things. They're questioning consumption patterns. They're questioning jobs. They're questioning what they do with their time, who's important in their life, what really matters. And um, all of this is becoming possible by really embracing what's happening. Mm, and being with this uncertainty and being present with it. Yeah. I'm just uh, reorganizing some of my thoughts now because I have been speaking a bit about our society's enormous fear of uncertainty, mm -hmm. which I think ultimately is rooted in our inordinate and extreme fear of death. But I'm wondering now if actually the problem isn't fear of uncertainty. It is kind of what you were saying, fear of fear, like, or mm -hmm. an aversion to actually being in uncertainty because fear is a natural 
part of uncertainty. It's mm -hmm. even a, a marker of uncertainty. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking again of walking down the icy path. There's uncertainty, like I don't know. And there's also danger. I mean, obviously fear is connected to danger. That's a super interesting uh, observation, also distinction. Yes, obviously fear is connected to danger. And one of the primary functions is to protect us from danger. At the same time, one of the greatest misunderstandings about fear is that fear means danger. And it doesn't. Like it would be way too dangerous if we would only be afraid in the, the moment there is danger. And that's why we're wired so that we become, we have fear the moment we meet the uncertain. And the might be danger. Could be, it could be danger. Right. And it could be an enormous opportunity. And if I look at the situation right now that we're in globally, I feel it's both. Yes, because uncertainty, it brings danger, but it also brings the possibility of growth and of change. So if, if we interpret fear to mean don't do that without using its heightened awareness to to really notice whether is it really danger i don't know though like in any i mean i think in any process of growth or change there is danger there of course the danger being maybe not to your survival or to your life but to who you've been mm -hmm. uh, it's like a valid it's true like if you change something is going to be lost if you grow the old skin that you lived in is going to be cast aside. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, um, I'm just pondering. Yeah. Fear as, as almost like, it's almost like something that if you are in a place in life personally, or as a society where you're feeling really stuck in an old set of patterns, in a set of institutions and structures and systems, uh, in a relationship, in a, in a job, like if you feel really stuck and you know that fear is an indication of uncertainty and possible danger, then you might actually want to even follow fear. Mm -hmm. And I, I've noticed this in at times in my life when I do feel stuck, I, I'm, I have a craving to go where I'm afraid. You know, like I'm afraid to get on a roller coaster. I'm afraid of that. Like that's like terrifying for me. So then I have this yearning to do it, to do, <laughs> to, to, to have an adventure, you know? Uh, and maybe the question is, are we ready for an adventure right now? Are we really ready? I mean, many of us in activism and change movements have been saying we're ready for a change. And now it's being offered to us. Mm -hmm. um, do we really want it? Are we really ready to follow the fear? Yes, that's one question that has been very present for me because I observe um, also in the alternative scene in my activist friends, I observe some of the same reactions of, of panic, of judgment, of uh, dare I say, conspiracy theories, that's, that's a, a difficult term. Uh, anyway, um, but anyway, this tendency to just jump to conclusions and just try to somehow fix it and, 
and nail it and and where I, I, I miss that availability actually it's an availability also for vulnerability and i really like what you pointed out how when you really feel stuck you crave fear for me that's such a sign of um having a really healthy relationship with that with with that feeling or that power mm. and i had a smile come to my face because if i look at the past years I've sensed we are so stuck collectively in the system that um, we all felt powerless to change. And right now it's not changing, but it's kind of, it's ground to a halt or a semi standstill. Uh, and yeah, I don't know, are we ready or how ready are we to really meet the uncertainty that has opened up and everything that is shifting? It seems that in, uh, in the US, I'm not sure, maybe it's less in Germany, but everybody seems to be wanting to use the crisis as ammunition for their own particular uh, battle plan uh, mm -hmm. to, to enroll the crisis into their own narrative, whether it's anti-Trump or pro-Trump, or you know, if your cause is racial justice, then it's all about how this is disproportionately affecting people of color if your cause is freedom and you know gun rights or something like that then like everybody is making a meaning out of it that fits into their pre-existing storyline and that is also a way to step away from uncertainty to reject the uncertainty to reject the the uncomfortable data points, the inconvenient truths, uh, and to say right away, okay, I know what's happening. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's interesting. And uh, um, I wonder if you, know, you, you were mentioning your activist friends and stuff and the conspiracy theories and it's, anything now that diverges from official reality is called a conspiracy theory. But, yeah, that's what I meant by difficult term. Yeah, right. But but let's like say uh, alternative narratives. What I've noticed here is that it's the people on the left tend, or the people who identify as progressive or liberal, they tend to believe the authorities. And it's the people on the right who are more skeptical of authority. And I'm like, I thought it was supposed to be the other way around. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the leftists that that didn't believe the man and and didn't believe the the intelligence services and the military and the medical authorities. They're the hippies, you know, they're living off the grid. But now it seems kind of the opposite, at least in the US. Um, mm -hmm. What's it like in Europe and in Germany? Here I really feel it's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's I see people in the whole spectrum questioning uh, authority um, and and completely not questioning <laughs> and everything in between. I've observed also in myself initially uh, moving, like you said, you went down a number of rabbit holes. Um, I, I did the same and just moving from different um, realities or approaches or narratives, I guess. And then settling in this not knowing <laughs> and mm -hmm. 
overall, the the whole conversation is very different over here than in the U.S. At least from how as much as I can follow the U.S. conversation from here, it seems different. Mm. Do you want to talk about death? Yeah, I feel I want to talk about death. So do I. I'm thinking here about uncertainty and fear and the craving to follow fear, to follow where fear leads, to say, what am I really afraid of? I want to know. I want to know what's in this realm that I'm afraid to go. Right now, I'm not that interested in exploring the realm outside of my physical bodily existence. Uh, you know, I don't want to die right now. Um, I'm not feeling stuck in life. I'm not feeling like I'm, I can't grow anymore in my current, the current incarnation of my soul. Uh, but I could envision someday if I'm elderly, you know, if I'm, um, or if I'm seriously ill and I just can't really do that much anymore, that I might be, I might feel, yeah, I am ready to go to this realm that I'm really afraid of where that's totally uncertain. So I guess I see a, a, a parallel between fear of change in general. And I mean, I see society obsessed with security right now, with safety, with minimizing risk, with trying to keep things the way that they are even though the way that they are is not actually a very good way, even yes. before coronavirus. You know, it's not like our society was moving in the right direction, politically, economically, ecologically. So a lot of people, including myself, on some level welcome any disruption. So fear of death isn't a bad thing. If you still have work to do here and joy to do here and beautiful experiences to have, then your natural biological system to make sure that you do stay here is completely valid and to be, to be welcomed. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if a useful distinction might be what you just mentioned, if I still feel I want to stay here, it makes sense to, to take care, <laughs> makes sense to drive carefully, to take care of my body, to, to look left and right before I cross the street. <laughs> you know, right. it makes sense. Um, and yet I feel fear of death is completely natural. And I had a beautiful dialogue with my mother about this because we were both ill with coronavirus. Uh, I was with my family and she was alone. Mm -hmm. And she's, uh, uh, she has heart issues and she's 77 years old. And she went through this beautiful um, process realizing that she doesn't want to go to the hospital. If she, if she should get really ill. And she, the moment that she decided this, she, she was much more uh, peaceful and calm and, and much less stressed because she realized that the prospect of going to a hospital and being intubated and, and, and being in this whole thing um, was actually not, was much more scary for her. Mm -hmm than the prospect of simply embracing uh, death 
And yet what, ha what she also shared with me is that, of course, that is a transition where it is natural to be afraid. And she compared it with birth. She mm -hmm. said also birth is a transition where it's, it's completely natural to be afraid because it's, it's overwhelming, it's uncertain, it's, it's so big. <laughs> yeah. Imagine what it must be like for the, for the fetus, for, yes. the, for the baby. It must be like a death. <laughs> yeah. Everything familiar that, that's been this way as long as you can remember is changing now. And it's intense. You're getting squeezed really hard and, and pushed, you know, and um, it's really uncomfortable. And you have no idea that it's ever going to end. I mean, basically for the fetus, uh, life has been getting worse and worse for quite a while. <laughs> you know, it's getting really tight in there. Uh, it, it, you used to be able to just move around as, as, as you liked. And by the time that you're in the, you know, the ninth month, you can barely move at all. You know, you can hardly change position even. And you're probably getting fed up with it. You're probably getting impatient. You know, you're probably, but you have nothing in your experience has told you that there's anything else. Isn't that like our society in a way, the hopelessness the, or the resignation, the, that the inability to see any um, plausible alternative mm -hmm. to the downward spiral into ecological and social decay. Like people have these dreams and these visions and here's how society should look and sacred economics, you know, uh, law of ecocide. I mean, all these uh, universal basic income, uh, restorative justice, like all these beautiful ideas which thrive on the fringes of the culture. But if you, if you say, okay, let's make that happen. Nobody has a realistic plan to make that happen. It seems like a pipe dream. And so there's this, this uh, fatalism, this resignation, and then maybe a cynicism and a bitterness and a helplessness. We're never gonna get out. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what the fetus is experiencing? Mm -hmm. And then, then the walls start actually pushing and squeezing and you, you do not know where you're going, but, and this is kind of the stage where we're at right now, I think, where it's been getting more and more uncomfortable. And now, now we're starting to get squeezed and pushed. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that happens though with the fetus uh, is that at some point, after the squeezing and pushing has been, the contractions have been going on for a little while, the cervix opens and you can see light coming in. And perhaps then you know that there is another world, that you are going somewhere, that this isn't just the eternal hell of worse and worse and worse conditions that never stop getting worse. You, you, there's a light, oh, I'm going somewhere. And then you get start getting pushed uh, through the birth canal. And it seems like we haven't quite got to that part yet. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the death process might be the same. Do you have any uh, anything to say about that from your contemplation and yes. study and work? 
Well, for one, I had the beautiful experience of accompanying a friend a few years ago through her dying process. And it was of such beauty. Um, and it really reminded me of the birth process, also the whole sacredness of it. And she was not in an age where you would normally say, oh, it's good that this person is dying and she didn't want to die. And, and yet it had that grace and beauty. Um, from the conversation with my mother, what I would like to share, and, and this is what I really find most painful about the way we're handling this subject of death right now in the crisis, is she would have really liked to have someone be with her in this transition. Mm -hmm. And she didn't pass, she's gotten better. And yet knowing that we would not be able to visit her or not be allowed to visit her. Um, and it, it really made my heart ache because I know it's not just her. I know there's so many elderly people isolated right now in nursing homes or in their homes. People are not allowed to see them. They're may be terribly afraid of death because their whole life it's been a taboo or it's been something that you know it's like the worst thing <laughs> and suddenly they're all alone possibly confronting this and and we as a society leave them alone in this process in the name of ethics and humanity and in the name of protecting them for their own good and there I really felt there, this is such a, a disrespect to these individuals, but even more so to life. Mm -hmm. And what's been, and I wrote, I actually wrote an essay about this. It hasn't been translated. I hope it will be soon um, about how the coronavirus is confronting us with our relationship with death and really wondering what it would be like if we would befriend death. And that wouldn't mean that, you know, we just do nothing and it's fine. And, you know, even if Charles still wants to stay here, tough luck, you know, this is life. You know, right. I feel for me, it, it, it really means what I would like is to have a second kind of intensive care and that a person can choose which intensive care they would like, uh, regardless of age. So even if there's like a 95 year old granny, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And she wants the, the mechanical hospital intensive care. Of course, who am I to know what is right for her? And at the same time, uh, a much younger person could feel, you know what? It's fine. I'm, I accept. But I would like people to be with me and guide me in this process. And even before, I would like to have people accompany me in this process of of really sensing what kind of intensive care I would like. Mm -hmm. So that's what's been really a pain in my heart because we are locking down everything. We are sacrificing so much, um, so much beauty, so much love, so much connection in the name of hum like humanity, like ethics. And yes. I don't feel it's really meeting the needs of the people we are pretending to take care of. And, and I know pretending is a tough word, but I'm using it on purpose. Mm 
uh, I, I almost feel like there's a pretense there because we are so afraid of looking at this taboo. It's the one thing I feel nobody is willing to touch it. The issue of death and whether maybe it's not even our job to prolong life for as long as possible. That's, for some reason, we are so scared of looking at this issue. Yeah, it's interesting that humanity and ethics basically equates to minimizing the risk of death. Yes. It's not actually about saving lives. Uh, there is no such thing as saving lives. There's only, there's only postponing death. That's what saving a life means. It means postponing death. And when we realize that, then instead of you know, imagining that if only it weren't for coronavirus that that person would live forever, we can ask, okay, how, how do you want to die? What is the right way to die? What is the right way to live? And what is the right way to die? And I, I think most people would rather die surrounded by their loved ones, even if it means dying a month earlier than to spend their last month on a respirator uh, alone. And they never get to say goodbye and never get to go through, the, through this, this process. Uh, I mean, miracles happen in the death process. Miracles mm -hmm. of forgiveness, miracles of reconciliation. It's, um, our society doesn't really seem to value that in this conversation mm -hmm. about what is ethical or what is humane. Yeah, not at all. And I think it's, it's um, you know, my, my personal theory about it is that the reason or an important reason why we put such an overridingly high priority on life extension is that it comes down to our understanding of what, what we are, who we are, what a self is, what life is, what what a human being is. Because if, if we believe that we're just a separate self, then death is in fact the ultimate catastrophe. Yes. So yeah, so people, like you're saying, like people are totally unprepared for, mm -hmm. for death. Having been in a culture that doesn't talk about it, that hides it, that makes it seem through even like TV commercials and advertisements where that, that embody a fetish for youth mm -hmm. and trying to stay young and all the models are young, you know, and, and like you're supposed to be young as if you could always be young. Like as if change is not a fact of life, as if we're not in a cycle from birth to, to, to old age to death. So people are unprepared for it. And maybe, I guess, to, to, like, as we were saying before, afraid of the fear, which is part of the unknown. Mm -hmm. I love this idea of another kind of intensive care. Mm. My mother was also in the hospital a few days ago, and it was the same thing. There was no possibility of visiting her. This was not her choice, but 
you know, then there's the argument, well, we can't choose for other people because we're not just endangering ourselves or our own mother or, you know, but, but possibly spreading infection, which to me says that, yeah, this has to be a social conversation yes. about what we value and why we value it. Uh, other cultures did not think this way. They did not value life preservation at all costs, maybe because they were closer to death. In, in, when you live close to nature, you're close to death. Mm-hmm. You know, you see death happening all the time. Um, and that familiarity, maybe it makes it harder to deny that you're going to die anyway someday. So how do I want to die? And how do I want to live up until the time I die? But other cultures wouldn't. Um, they had a concept that it was my time. Mm-hmm. It is time. To even say that it is time places death in a natural order. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of an acceptance. It's my time. For the separate self, it's never your time. And the separate self has created, or the, the narrative of the separate self has created a society where our collective identity, I feel, is completely bound up in this war against death. Mm-hmm. This is this is our identity, and that's why we're willing to sacrifice even the holy cow of our economy for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so far the economy was, at least over here, the holy cow. Like nothing went above it, and and suddenly there is this just the prospect of death <laughs> happening. Um, really, it was just the prospect. <laughs> Because right. for a long time, we just didn't know. And, and, and at least over here, there was a lot of transparency that we don't know. Uh, but the possibility that a young person could die without having had uh, prior illnesses, just that possibility was such a big, cannot be, <laughs> cannot mm-hmm. happen, must be avoided at all costs. Uh, it's startling. And... Yeah, I'm really, I'm really touched, and I feel it goes deeper. Also, it's, it's, or it, it goes into all, all areas of our lives. It's like you say, there is this cycle, you know, and and we 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 worship youth. We don't see the beauty in aging. We don't see the beauty in death. We try to just forget about death, and we we do the same thing with pain, like. Our whole culture um, is all about having the good stuff without the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And so having joy without pain, uh, for example. And through that, in my exploration at least, we create enormous suffering. <laughs> so we avoid pain, but we create suffering. And I, I feel really returning to a place like you mentioned where we see it's a cycle and everything is a cycle like pleasure and pain is a cycle and birth and death is a cycle and youth and old age everything is embedded in cycles and we can embrace those cycles and we can cooperate with these phenomena and yes i would add another like just so you can't have joy without pain you can't have life without death 
You can't have love without loss. Mm. All of these are part of being fully alive. So if you, if you go to war against death, to some extent, you can, you can partially succeed. I mean, you can minimize your risk if you want to. If you want to absolutely minimize every possible risk of dying, you can just stay at home, never go out, never get into a car, never touch another human being, never take any risk at all. And this is kind of what our society has become. Mm-hmm. You know, children are not allowed outside to play by themselves anymore. If they do, then Child Protective Services comes and, mm-hmm. and takes them away from you because for their own good, because mm-hmm. they could get hurt playing outside unsupervised. When I was a child, this was not a problem. You know, it was normal. Mm-hmm. But this is just one way that we actually are, as a society, moving toward risk minimization. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, though, when, when you deny death because death is necessary for life, not only biologically, but also psychologically, you also deny life. And it's like, what kind of life is it to be indoors and be afraid of everything and to minimize your risks, to live for the sake of living as long as possible? Mm -hmm. That's not being fully alive. And the same thing is true if you are going to try to prevent any kind of grief or loss then you better not fall in love with somebody. Because as Francis Weller says, everything you love, you will lose. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt. If you love somebody, they're going to die, or they're going to leave you, or you're going to die. <laughs> like you have to say goodbye to everything. So mm-hmm. you could choose never to fall in love. And a lot of people do that. I mean, I think- A lot that, of people do that, yes. Yeah, like I, I myself, like I have- you know, some amount of fear about really going there, really like mm-hmm. opening my heart, like, because to do that, I'm letting go of control. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with pain and joy. Mm-hmm. Like if you are oriented toward preventing any kind of discomfort, life goes into this lukewarm neutrality. Mm-hmm. And, and you never get to enjoy that much of anything either, because you're always worried about you know, the pain that will maybe follow it. Uh, you can't enjoy, like if, like you can't enjoy a little bit of wine if you are terrified of a hangover. I mean, maybe that's not the best example, but, <laughs> but you know. I have a question. Yeah. You know those moments when you experience such intense aliveness I don't know if you've ever experienced this, um, but I'm wondering that there's this moment where it feels so complete that if you would die that moment, it would be fine. Yes. And, and I just feel like when you said earlier, yes, of course, the whole Cartesian notion of, uh, you know, you're just a separate self and just a machine. And when you die, that's it. That's part of our fear of death. But I feel the other part is like what you mentioned, the fear of life or actually not having lived. Mm -hmm. And because we haven't lived, we just want to hang on and hang on and hang on. Right. Hmm. And And that's one reason too, that in this culture of risk minimization, people, because of the yearning to actually live, 
they try to find some permitted way mm-hmm. to experience fully living. So you might watch action movies or mm-hmm. play intense video games or, or, you know, look at lurid pornographic websites or something like that. But that doesn't meet the real need because there's part of you that's like, this isn't real. Mm-hmm. It's just on a screen. So mm-hmm. the other response, <laughs> this is maybe another excess deficiency thing, you know, the paralysis panic thing. The other response would be to go out and do extreme sports, rock climbing, bungee jumping, or to take stupid risks. Uh, young people especially will do this, go out, mm-hmm. get plastered, drunk driving, you know, because this bottled up life force, this bottled up desire to move past the boundaries of safety, to grow, mm-hmm. to change, to fully enjoy life, like this mm-hmm. is an undeniable force. Mm-hmm. And if it, to, mm-hmm. if it doesn't have a, a natural, healthy expression, which does involve risk, then it's mm-hmm. going to take some unnatural expression or it's going to attack the body. It's going to turn inward and create illness. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's again, it's this pattern or this, this talent, you could even say, of our culture to uh, isolate something that we want and put it into a package and then sell us that package. And that package is kind of like industrial sugar where you've removed all the, the fiber and all the nutrients mm-hmm. <laughs> and you get just the drug. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and, and I feel it's, it's with everything you mentioned, that's the same thing. And be, exactly because that is missing, the risk is missing, because it's not real, it doesn't meet the need. And then it's never satiated. Right. Hmm. So maybe um, I'd like to uh, return to making friends with fear and maybe even making friends with death. Uh, Hold on a second. Somebody's jumping all over the place and shaking the house. They sensed us talking. Okay. About I'm back. fully embracing being alive. Oh yeah. He's fully <laughs> embracing being alive. Uh, mm. He's a kid. Like he'll jump off a high thing, you know, he's, all, mm. but it's not like he's fearless. It's just mm. that he's not governed by fear. Well, that's the thing, you know, this is what I observe. I do a lot of talks also in front of parents and educators, and Mm -hmm. it's not about not having fear. And it's, it's about really growing with the fear and learning this dance with the fear where it tells you, okay, this is your limit. And and do you want to cross it or not? And Mm -hmm. such a dance. So Mm. is that, is that what you mean by making friends with fear? Yes really seeing what a gift fear is and what an ally it is to meet these places, these places that children naturally love to explore. I mean, they always look for that edge of the known and it's a process that never ends. And then of course, the the last time we know of is, is when we pass into death or through death, which we don't know. Yeah, that's definitely the edge of the known, isn't it? Yes. I've, I've read, you know, various uh, literature about near-death experiences and, you know, reincarnation and things. 
And there's part of my mind that would like to say, okay, is there proof of this? Is there proof of survival after death? Uh, this literature is, you know, fairly convincing, but not absolutely convincing. My skeptical mind can come up with all kinds of other, you know, it's a hallucination brought on by the DMT release, mm -hmm. you know, as, as the brain dies. Uh, so it is actually an unknown and it's supposed to be an unknown. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I was just about to say, you know, you can read a lot of books about childbirth and nothing is going to come close to the actual experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, not even remotely. Wow. And How many children do you have, Vivian? Two? Two. Yeah. I have two boys. Um, and I mean, even witnessing births, you, yeah. you, you get that. Oh my goodness, yeah. Nothing can prepare you for that, really. Um, and... And every time, a new. Mm -hmm. mm. So for me, I, I've been friends with death for a long time, actually. And how did you become friends with death? My first ever experience of life being intelligent and alive came through a very close meeting with death. And it wasn't like a near death experience where I actually went somewhere else, but it mm -hmm. was like the moment before the lights went out, mm -hmm. I, I like fainted underneath the tree and I saw a leaf on that tree. And mm -hmm. in that moment I got, I saw how alive that tree, that leaf is for the first time. And I realized that even that leaf, um, it's hard to put into words, but it's something like, is worth living for, or it makes sense to live for that leaf. Mm -hmm. And and since then, I've, I've actually uh, sought the proximity of death again and again. Like I would spend, uh, I, I lived in India for a couple of years, and I would spend a lot of time next to uh, burning corpses, uh, meditating, and and really meeting this energy, <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's really a, a very um, a sacred field. That, that is there. And just now also when I had Corona and I was really acutely aware of the fact that this virus, we don't know how likely or unlikely, probably very unlikely for someone my age, but it could be that um, I suddenly find it hard to breathe and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I found it so precious. I found it so precious to be in that awareness and I feel that's part of the initiation, part of the gift of what we're experiencing right now, that we have an opportunity to meet our vulnerability and our, it's more than our vulnerability, it's just the sacredness of, of life really, that at least I meet when I am close to death. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering for, for people who are listening to our conversation, they might be thinking, well, I want to make friends with death, uh, but I can't make myself have a near-death experience or faint under a leaf. Or if I'm not in India, there's probably not corpses burning <laughs> right around the corner. 
you know, because it's so hidden here. Like, what would you, yeah. what would you say to meet that, that yearning that people might be feeling now to make friends with death? Well, I feel the whole situation we're in is is a wonderful opportunity. I mean, theoretically, not just theoretically, but any one of us could have it, and any one of us could die from it. And it doesn't matter what the probability is. It really doesn't matter. If we really let that sink in and, and allow ourselves to be, to be moved by that, to be vulnerable to that fact, we are beginning, we, we meet a fear, which is natural and it's good. And then my invitation would be to really feel that fear because the first thing we do is we contract and we try not to feel it. Mm -hmm. To actually really feel in your body, in your heart, in your system, feel the fear and then relax into that fear and allow it to expand in your system. And that's actually beautiful practice. And right now is is a wonderful, wonderful time to do it, exactly because of what you say, death normally is so hidden, and now it's there. I mean, we have refrigerated trucks <laughs> on the roads with, with corpses in them in some places. Um, and we have, in Italy or Spain, we had the military take away bodies, mm -hmm. and people are freaking out because of that, because we, have, we haven't been seeing death. Death has been invisible. Yes. There's a lot of classical spiritual practices that are um, basically meditations on death. Mm -hmm. You meditate on yourself as a corpse being eaten by worms, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I do a practice sometimes of uh, breath retention where, where I'll, there's different ways I do it, but one of them is from Kundalini yoga called one minute breaths where you, Breathe just once a minute, very slowly, inhaling 20 seconds, hold 20, exhale 20. Mm -hmm. And then when I get used to it, then extending it up to, to 30 seconds, so a minute and a half, or even up to two minutes for a little while. And Or I'll, or I'll uh, do Wim Hof breathing, where you hyperventilate, and then you exhale all the breath, and you hold it out as long as you can. And what I, what I experience is as the craving for breath increases, there's like, you know, and you can hear the, your blood pounding in your ears, your fingers start to curl, like, and this, this deep, deep fear comes up. It's like, I'm dying, you know, and it's just intolerable. Like the amount of fear is overwhelming which is, as we were saying before, good in a way, because like, I don't want to die. You know, this fear is it, because it's intolerable, I gasp for the breath. Mm. Um, but I am kind of playing at that boundary a little bit, mm -hmm. hopefully not killing too many brain cells. I don't know about that. <laughs> Sometimes I suspect that it might not be good to do it. But, uh, and the same thing with the cold water immersion I was telling you about mm -hmm. you know, when we talked before. Um, you get into that icy cold water and it brings up a kind of life or death panic. I mean, biologically, mm -hmm. if you're suddenly plunged into icy cold water, it probably means that you are in big trouble. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a, this, this programmed response, but then I, the practice is that you relax, you feel it and you relax into mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So maybe these are, are, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just taking your suggestion. Um, mm -hmm. cause I've noticed this knocking at the door and I'm now I'm thinking like, yeah, I could actually use these practices even more, more purposefully to meet and greet death. Mm. I also, I recorded a 20 minute uh, meditation that's on YouTube mm. to, to support people when, when they feel that um, there's a lot of fear in their system and mm -hmm. paralysis or panic. And, and they want to get into that space of the power of fear and the openness and the, the expansion. So there's a, a journey that I um, guide people through that, um, that is also a possibility. And basically it's what you mentioned with these practices, you bring yourself to a place of mildly put of discomfort mm -hmm. and you, you allow yourself to feel it and to relax into it and to embrace it from what I'm hearing. And also being very present with it, of course, when is the moment to breathe again? Mm -hmm. um, and through that, something in you is transformed. It's, it, actually, when I hear you talk about it, it's, uh, it sounds like a cleansing also, like there's something that dies in you mm -hmm. and you emerge renewed. Yeah. Is that uh, what happens? Um, is that what happens? I definitely feel more alive after I do that practice. Mm. There's probably physiological reasons why I feel more alive because the hyperventilation flushes the CO2 out of the blood. And then uh, I don't know exactly what's happening physiologically, but I definitely feel more alive after I do it. Mm. Mm. So as you say that I, I have this, I'm, I'm coming back to our collective situation and just had this wish come up that mm. we come out of this feeling more alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come out of our collective situation, feeling more alive. Yeah. I, I was having a conversation yesterday about this, about, uh, you know, you never know how precious something is until you're faced with his loss. You know, like if your loved one becomes seriously ill and they recover you feel so appreciative mm. of them and so grateful that they're just here. And maybe now that we've experienced life being so shut down that when we can hug and handshake and gather mm -hmm. again, maybe we'll appreciate just how precious these are. Mm -hmm. And we will experience directly the connection between pain and joy, the connection between, between loss and love, the connection between death and life. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll maybe choose life again, choose it over risk minimization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. May it be so. Yes, may it be so. I mean, you know, we're having this conversation across, you know, seven or 8,000 kilometers of dis distance. 
you're just a voice at this moment. Um, and it is making me appreciate how precious every human being is and, you know, our moments together in person. Um, I just take such things for granted. Mm. But I am grateful that we uh, can have this conversation. And yeah, is there anything else you want to uh, give us as uh, parting words? It feels really complete. Conversation feels really complete for me. Um, I do feel like there's more to be had, so. Mm -hmm. But thank you for joining me here. Mm. Thank you so much for the invitation, Charles. Yeah, I feel there's more conversations to be had and my heart feels really full and nourished. And actually one gift that I really find in this, in this lockdown phase, and that's been present for me for a number of years, that through this digitized conversation or communication, like you said, we're 7,000 kilometers apart or something like this, and yet on another level, in this moment, we are very close. And the situation that we have right now where there's such a minimization of contact, mm -hmm. physical contact, is really heightening people's ability to perceive that. I'm hearing that from many people. And that's a gift. And I noticed that also from a guy who was one of the first people who came out of intensive care in the north of Italy. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I'm an engineer. Normally, all that matters for me is the things I can measure and I can count. Yeah. But when I was in intensive care, what really carried me through this were the silent thoughts of my loved ones. Wow. Yeah. So something is shifting in us as a species. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's even like one of those dark room retreats, you know, where you mm -hmm. have this sense deprivation and suddenly other senses can blossom. I've been so interested in the, uh, doing a dark room retreat someday. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Vivian. Um, thanks so much. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be in touch. Yes, we will. Yes. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again 